to the Constructionist Podcast, hosted by Caleb. Just as we grow gardens and build buildings, God is building you through the renewing of your mind. The sufficiency of the scriptures is paramount in your journey, and every week, Caleb will challenge you to make them a central part of your life and worldview. Join us now as we explore the world through the ancient lens of God's Word. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Constructionist Podcast. We're actually out for a drive today, so if you hear any clicking or something like that, it might be my indicator slash turn signal doing its thing. But anyway, uh, it's nice to have you with me. As many of our regular listeners know, the Constructionist Podcast is built around the idea that we're just out for a walk or having a kind of pleasant conversation together. So what we want to talk about today is still along the lines of what it is about interpreting the Bible, what it means to interpret the Bible, how should we come to the scriptures and read it. And I'm going to suggest a way today to read it that maybe is one that you've never heard of before. I first came across it reading a book by Craig Carter called Interpreting the Bible with the Great Tradition. So in this book, he suggests that we must abandon much of our current way of reading the scriptures. And he goes into a great amount of detail as to why. And I like what he has to say a lot because what he says is, is that our modern way of reading and looking at scripture is tainted by the current underlying metaphysic of how we view the world or how we see the universe around us. Now, you might be familiar with the idea of worldview. The idea of worldview has been around for quite a long time. But underlying the idea of worldview is a metaphysic. It's first principles, as Aristotle would have referred to it uh, in his metaphysics, Aristotle's metaphysics. He's dealing with the issues of first principles. Worldview deals with sort of second principles, things like culture and language and, you know, how culture is influenced by uh, history and geography, things like this. But then something like a metaphysic is even more foundational than that. That is sort of the underlying principles or concepts that make your brain or your mind function as it does. It's even more fundamental than the, the presuppositions of worldview. It's, it's in the, the kind of what, how does the universe function? <laughs> sort of that way of thinking about things. So as I've understood it through Craig Carter's book, as well as others, who uh, write on this same sort of subject, the, the modern metaphysic is based on a concept called nominalism. Nominalism comes out of uh, a chap primarily named William of Ockham. Now, this guy lived in the 13th century, so he was bouncing around in like the 1200s, somewhere in there. Um, 
we're going back a long way. But his ideas that are that is now called nominalism revolved around viewing the world or viewing God first and foremost as nothing but will. So God was a willful being. He was basically just pure will. Because William of Ockham was trying to simplify how he understood God. He wanted to get things down to the most basic position or the most basic concepts. Now the problem with that, <coughs> sorry, the problem with that is that, uh, yes, Scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It does say that. The Lord is Echad. Yahweh is the Hebrew word Echad. But he is the Echad Elohim. He is the Lord God. And Elohim is plural. So Yahweh is one. Yes, our God, Yahweh, is one. Echad. Unity. A oneness. But he is a plurality in that oneness. He is Elohim, which is a plurality. God, you could say. So, Old William of Ockham missed that. That, that was his fundamental flaw. He reduced God to a being of will or volition to the neglect that God is actually an irreducible complexity. You, you, you can reduce God to certain things, but you cannot reduce him to only a single, a single thing. He is a unity, a oneness of a few things. We could say Trinity, but 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 uh, he is a oneness of multiple attributes that are all boiled down to the person of God. So that's where William went wrong, old William of Ockham, is he said, well, God is will. He is volition. He chooses. He reveals himself, but he, reveal, he chooses to reveal himself. So this idea then also was paired with the concept of a mechanistic universe. So nominalism is not concerned about why things work. It's only concerned about how things work. And this is very much the world in which we live in today. It is a world where we are in the image of God, so we choose. How many times have you been in a grocery store? I've seen this done many times in a grocery store, and a mother says to her three-year-old standing next to her, or her four-year-old, are you ready to go to the car now? Or are you ready to, uh, to eat now? It's like the child is three. He doesn't know what he wants. You, do, you choose for him. We give our children choice at a very young age when they're not able to make those choices. And then we wonder why when they get to be 16, 17, 18, they want to change genders or, or choose that they are, um, they're gay or something to that effect. But we've given them way too many choices throughout life. And so they become in the image of this willful being, this being that functions by their volition. They make a decision right now, thinking that they'll be a certain way or they'll be able to function and operate in a certain way once they've made that decision or they'll feel a certain way once they've made that decision. But that's not how the world works. The world 
before William of Ockham operated on the basis that God was a God of reason, like it says in Isaiah chapter 1, and in his reasoning, he has created a reasonable world. And we are in his image, and we are reasonable as well. And so we talk, we interact, we discuss, we debate, we learn from those around us and from creation. And then we, as we learn from creation how it works, we ask questions like, why? Why is it the way it is? And those why questions push us to God, who is reasonable. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, let us reason together. Your sins are like scarlet, but you can be white as snow. Let's reason together. You, you, you may be living a, a life that is filled with hopelessness and despair and sadness, but you could actually have hope and have joy and have peace. Let's reason together. I've made a way for you to do this. So this is the God of the Bible, not the God of William of Ockham. William of Ockham, uh, in his attempts to make God more easily understandable, has actually reduced him to something that he is not. But that underlying metaphysic to make God the first principle, something that the Bible says he is not, has now made humanity into thinking that they are something that they are not, that they are little gods, that they can make their own decisions and control their own environment and their own little world and their own lifestyle uh, to the point where they actually fight against the very essence of who they are. A lot of people fight against their essence of being male and want to be female. They fight against their um, the, 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 the male quality of, of desiring women and then desire other men. And women do the same thing. They don't desire men, they desire other women. And Romans 1 explains all of this and, ex and explains why it is that this is uh, a dangerous direction for society to go. So, having said all that, there's underlying metaphysics. I would highly recommend getting Craig Carter's book and, and reading it. It is um, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, or Through the Great Tradition, something like that, Craig A. Carter. And uh, it's well worth the read, very challenging stuff. The other thing he brings up in the world of interpretation is this idea of a prosopological interpretation of Scripture. So prosopological comes from the old Greek word uh, prosopos, which has to do with the idea of an actor wearing a mask. So we know that the word hypocrite in Greek means an actor, somebody who's pretending to be something they're not, is a hypocrite. So that's a bad thing. But uh, someone who's putting on a prosopos is wearing a mask in order to aid the audience in who he's trying to portray. Somebody who's evil, somebody who's happy, somebody who's in anguish. These kind of masks were worn in order to get across the character in the play. And so in those days, Plays were done in amphitheaters or in the open air or maybe in a theater, like in William Shakespeare's days. It was the Royal Shakespearean Theater in London and in Warwick uh, in England. But uh, going back to ancient Greece, they were done maybe in small ones in open squares or they were done in amphitheaters. And so it was easy to project one's voice 
But the person was still on the stage, and he may have been far away from the audience, parts of the audience. So they would wear these larger-than-life masks in order to uh, convey what was going on with the character. Now, this is a way of reading the Bible. And I'm going to base this way of reading the Bible on the Hebrew phrase used for the table of showbread in the tabernacle. So remember, the tabernacle was a tent. The same table of showbread was also in the temple. But the tabernacle was a tent that was set up in the very center of the nation of Israel. All the tribes had to camp in order around the tabernacle. So the tabernacle became the central focus of the camp. And in the tabernacle was a table, and on that table was 12 loaves of bread. And each loaf of bread represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So a table of bread represents things like fellowship. It represents communion. It represents a shared uh, a shared meal together. It represents, uh, which is joy and 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 um, camaraderie and all these different things. But the table of showbread was literally in Hebrew. It was panim le panim, panim le panim. Sorry, blah, blah, blah. panim le panim. So it's a plural word towards a singular word. So panim is the Hebrew word for faces, sometimes translated presence, but it's, it's, it can literally mean faces. So lepani is toward or, or going or being gone or going to the face, faces toward the face. So the face, the, the center of the tabernacle, the very, the very holy of holies of the tabernacle was God himself. He dwelt in the Holy of Holies. So when you enter the tabernacle, your uh, your sacrifice, depending on what kind it was and what time of year it was and who was offering it and various things like that, but the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice would go from the brazen altar out by the door of the tabernacle, which any, any Israelite could walk up to with a sacrifice. Grain offering, peace offering, trespass offering, burnt offering, whatever. So they would, they would be able to get to as far as that. The priest would then would have to take blood from that sacrifice, which was put on that altar, and he would carry it into the holy place. And then he would, at sometimes in some offerings, he would then sprinkle that blood on another altar, an altar of incense. So you had an altar where animals were killed, but then you had an altar where incense was given. And sometimes the blood from the one altar would go to the second altar. And there's typology in there with the cross and the crucifixion and our walk from uh, death to self into prayer. And all of that is all wrapped up in these two altars or these two crosses, you could say. Because that's the typology and the picture that's being transmitted from the Old Testament up into the New Testament. But in regards to the table of showbread, that was there and it was illuminated by the candelabra, the, 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 the menorah, the candlestick, that was on the left-hand side as you walked into the tabernacle, or the south side, sorry, yes, south side. So it would illuminate this table of showbread, and the table of showbread had incense sprinkled on it from the altar of incense, which was directly in front of you as you walked in. 
So these three elements were all interrelated with each other. Now, the table of showbread uh, was there very near, but in the holy place, but very near the holy of holies, which is where God dwelt. He dwelt just past the altar of incense in the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. So this table was called Faces Toward the Face, which is a beautiful picture because it's all of the faces of the nation of Israel and all of the faces of the people of God, we could say today around the world, all aim toward God's face. Now, I love it when little kids are uh, at a table and all the adults start laughing at the same time. Have you ever seen little kids do this? You can manipulate a child's face by making a face. So if you make a very, I did this with my kids, make a very happy face and they would, they would, they would become happy. But if you make a very firm and stern face, you know, when they're very little, I had one, one of my kids would almost, he, his little lip would start to go out and it would be like he would start to cry. And then you would start making a really happy face again and he would get a little confused, but then he would start laughing. And so your face would control the, the face. So when we read scripture now, we have to read it with an eye towards whose face are we looking at? Ultimately, we are looking at God's face, ultimately. But we can read scripture and look at other faces as well. Ultimately, we want to know God's face. There are passages that are very clearly showing us the face of God. Isaiah 53, things like a passage like that, shows us the face of, of God, who God is. Certainly the Gospels are showing us the face of God because Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So whatever his face is doing, that's what God's doing. But there's other passages as well, particularly in the Psalms, when you read them. Uh, I was reading a Psalm the other day and I wrote at the top of it, the, the prayer of Jesus at Gethsemane. Because as I read it, even though it was a Psalm, I think of Asaph, uh, I think it was written by Asaph. I don't remember the exact psalm off the top of my head. But as I read it, I thought, this, this is what Jesus could have prayed in Gethsemane. It is his prayer. So the psalms were written by particular people. Some of them have no authors attached to them. Others have an author attached to them. David, Asaph, Solomon, Moses, different ones. But then others, but so you can read it very clearly from the position from the perspective of this is the face of Asaph. This is the face of Solomon. This is the face of Moses. Because it says this is a Psalm of Moses or a Psalm of David. So some of them give us a scenario. David was in the cave of Adullam. David was hiding from Saul. David was on the run. David was whatever. Some of them actually tell us David uh, wrote this Psalm after he repented from his... Um, his affair with Bathsheba, Psalm 51. So some of these we read and we and we put David there, but we also put ourselves there because the scriptures are eternal. Jesus is forever uh, the one who is and the one the one who was and who is and, and shall be. So because Jesus is eternal, the word of God is eternal. So it's written to the people of God who are seeking his face. That's who it's written to. David was a man after God's own heart. He sought God's face. And these psalms came out of his desire 
to pour out his heart to God. So the psalm can also be your desire to pour out your heart to God. If the words fit, use them. They are your prayers. They are your hymns to God. You can certainly do that. But as we look at something like Psalm 22, we see that it very clearly is about Jesus. Psalm 22 is quoted over and over again in the Gospels, in the crucifixion narratives. And so it's clearly about Jesus. So whose face are you seeking? Ultimately, you're seeking God's face. You want to be looking at him. But also, these are reflections of ourselves or of our loved ones who are going through various uh, moments of joy or moments of sadness or moments of challenge or moments of spiritual growth. These are, you read something like Galatians. Paul is very angry, you could say, to the Galatians. He, 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 he thinks that they are throwing away their salvation, is what he implies that they're doing. He's very upset. But when you read Philippians, he's not upset about writing to that church. He's very grateful to what they did. They sent him a, a financial gift. So when you read it, you kind of have to stop and go, okay, what face is Paul putting on now? He says, should I come to you um, in, in um, how's he put it when he writes to the, Coloss or the Corinthians? He says, should I come to you sternly or, you know, coming to you down, coming down hard? They say, he said, some people say that he's, He's very firm in his letters, but not in presence when you actually see him and things like this. So Paul has an awareness of how he's perceived by various people. So we have to discern that as we're reading through the, the epistle. And, and like when he writes to the Corinthians, he's, very, he's almost surprised as he writes to the Corinthians. He's almost surprised that they're doing what they're doing. He's like, I can't believe you're actually doing this. Unsaved people don't do what you're doing, is what he says. So he's got a particular face on when he's writing to them. So when you read scripture, consider the prosopological approach. Consider the face of the person who is being, who is doing the writing that it's about. Consider your own face. What does it make you do? Is it reflecting the face of the author? Is it reflecting God's face? If it's not, then maybe you should consider whether or not you're being a child of God. You, you might be a rebellious child of God. You know what I mean? If a, ch if a child of mine at a young age wants to reflect my face when I'm happy or, or upset and they reflect that, then we need to reflect God's face as children of God. We need to be like little children. Let's reflect his face. Let's look up to him when we want to know what, what to feel or think or understand or believe about a situation. That's what we need to do. So God bless you. I hope that this challenges you, and as you read the scriptures, you will see something even deeper in them. And again, I recommend the book by Craig A. Carter, uh, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. It's well worth uh, the investment, and it's a challenging book, and I think it will help you see the world around you and the scriptures in a much uh, greater light. God bless you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you are challenged and encouraged by what you heard today, please feel free to share it with any friends or family you like. You're welcome to email us at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. That's calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. And remember, 
to leave a comment at iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts.